Hey guys, before we get started with a very special episode, with a very special guest, you know what it is. Follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at LaunchpadPod and our website, launchpadpod.com. Watch us on YouTube. You're going to want to watch this one because you want to see this person's face. You want to hear the fascinating stories that she has. Um, Matt, I'm excited I'm excited. About this. Yeah, this is, this is, I, we'll tease it, but we're very excited about this. It is a, a guest who has a profession that we've never spoken to and i bet you you've never read an interview by somebody who does this job that's the thing i so i was trying to do research like what kind of questions should i ask what kind of things and it's like i can't find very many interviews everybody wants to talk to the other people surrounding this profession it's a it's somebody involved with comic books we'll tease it that far but like everybody <laughs> wants to talk to artists everybody wants to talk to writer but like not a lot of people get to talk to this type of person and i'm really excited and the woman that we have i'll tease that it's a woman Ooh. she is i think she's one of the leading of her profession she's one of the ones that i did find a couple interviews and a couple uh, both both uh, print interviews as well as uh video interviews with and she is great she's not only great at what she does but she's a really great person to talk to so we're very very excited to have her on the show you want to get this underway let's do it man i'm hitting uh, i'm excited now. Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Right, welcome to Launchpad Podcast. I'm Aaron. Uh, Matt. Matt, we got a special guest in the Launchpad today. I love it when we get to talk to comic book creators, but today we have a special one. It's the first time we've gotten to talk to a comic book letterer. Matt, who is our guest today? Uh, we have a, really a legend in the house today. We have Janice Chang, who has lettered books all over the place. And I really got to say, I think letterer is one of the many jobs, I think many jobs for comics that is an unsung hero. And Janice... I think that you've worked on so many great, important things and you've done so much with the, the, the profession and the medium of lettering. We cannot wait to talk to you. <laughs> Thank you for the great introduction. A lot of times I tell, um, you know, um, new freelancers, it's time and place. You know, I couldn't have dreamt of what I was going to be doing the next 40 years. I couldn't have told you. So it just happened and you roll, you know, you roll with the punches, you know. And if there's a fork in the road, hopefully you choose the correct one. So that's basically how my career developed. Were well, you trying to get into comic books or lettering specifically? Or were you just like there one day and somebody's like, can you write words? And people are like, oh, okay. Get it. <laughs> well, my background is in fine arts. And uh, I was going to college at the time and I needed a job. So my sis older sister, Faye Chang, was really good friends with Larry Hama who was uh, mentored by Wally Wood and Ralph Reese had pulled him in when they were students in the school of art and, and design. So my sister Faye asked Larry, can you help my sister out? She needs a job. So I was like, okay, we'll teach her how to letter. And that's it. That, wow. That's how it began. <laughs> now, even before that, when you were growing up, what, were you, what did you imagine as a child? What did you imagine you would do when you grew up? Did you think about that kind of stuff? Yeah, I always thought I would get into art because, um, you know, I was born in the mid-50s, so that takes us back. And it was during the Cold War with China. So, you know, my parents were saying to us, uh, you got to keep low. 
you know, because, you know, this country's not very tolerant of different people. And my mom would say, look what they did to the Japanese during World War II. They put sure. them in German camps. So, you know, heeding their advice, we just plowed into our academics and we really loved art. So um, at that time, it's like, OK, I'll finish college, high school, a certain age, college, and I'll get my Ph.D. in art. I don't know what I was going to do with it, but you know, <laughs> I, was, I was on that track academically, you know. I, I started college when I was 16, so I thought I'd get my PhD by 23, but, you know, life <laughs> life is not what is planned. And, um, you know, it's like I tell young people and mature people, you have a dream, you have reality. The road you travel is going to be between the two. So um, I'm very grateful to my parents who gave me a you know, great moral compass and really encouraged us with our art and our studies and such and the creative environment where we could thrive. So, you know, it's like, yeah, you had to leave home to come home. <laughs> sure. You know, <laughs> well, you, you know, it's very interesting because clearly you have a very strong academic background if you jumped into college at such a young age, but you also also clearly have such a creative background, right? Pursuing art. Um, did you find it hard to balance those two things where, you know, essentially like left brain, right brain? Well, not really. You know, the only uh, rule I had for myself was do, do the hard stuff, which, you know, you have to show academically, you know, your papers or your homework. Do that and then get to do the fun stuff, which is art. Um, so another shortcut I learned was uh, how to use in between time. I'd be walking mm -hmm. from, you know, school to home. In my head, I would compose like the essays I had to do or term papers. Then I'd run home and write it down or type it down. So, you know, like, I don't like wasting time. That's Those are no breaks for Janice. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's like, I mean, you know, I think with art and science, it's all about creative problem solving. So any new problem was like exciting. You know, why not? Why can't we do that? So, you know, I found if I got my academics out of the way, I could sit down and do the fun stuff with the art. So it worked out well for me. What kind of art were you into at the time before you got into comics? Were you into pop art? Was it focused on classical art? What, what kind of art were you pursuing? Well, yeah, we had, you know, basic training with, you know, drawing, um, painting. Uh, in college, I got to do etching. So it was like very, you know, fundamental arts. Um, and it was just exploring the medium. So, uh, yeah, it was like just seeing how it related also, because, you know, skills build on skills. You don't need one set of skills and also learn something new. They overlap. And I think that's the accumulation of knowledge and in turn wisdom. You know, when you understand everything's connected and you're not singled out for good experiences or bad experiences, just in the mix of life. We're going to get a lot of philosophy in this discussion yeah. today. <laughs> I feel like seriously, you're like the most, uh, the most academically knowledgeable person that I've talked to. You're also like making me feel grounded, Janice. Thank you. Good. You know, <laughs> that's the whole purpose of this talk. You know, thank you so much for having me on your, on your show, because, you know, it's hard to reach people, especially with the pandemic now. Oh, yeah. um, the conventions I hardly attended because I had all these deadlines. So I think it was like, oh, I don't think my editor wants to see me having fun. I'm convinced. <laughs> it was like deadline. Because, you know, at Marvel, um, yeah. the editors would tell me, you know, there was like a $10,000 fine if we didn't get, you know, our art and the books ready for the printer by Friday. Oh. So I was like, oh, my goodness, that's horrible. You know, we don't want to be fined $10,000. <laughs> so that's always my over my head. Here's some more advice for um, mature and, and uh, young creators is like, when you take on a project, you know, you set, you know, your responsibility at the deadline. 
my advice is like come in early don't like sure. go that day or don't pass that deadline because everyone's interdependent and so you know my thinking uh with my experience was like okay you know the writer the penciler inker they have a certain type of work and so the letters and colorists so we if we can help as a team by that time okay somebody has like a creative block or something or life happens and something happens in your family and take care of it so it's better to come in early than like dragging everybody along with you here's like i i always slap my head when i see a freelancer when i'm waiting files from them and then on social media it's like uh you know <laughs> we're waiting here you know like i'm really not interested come on you know it's like throw the potato <laughs> Every time you see them posting on Instagram, you're like, you could be typing something else. <laughs> yeah. um, so, exactly. Or, you know, you can uh, come in on time for once. <laughs> here's a question about deadlines. Um, do you have to wait till the art is done completely? Like, or like as you have to wait for the page to be there before you can put your work into it, the letters, right? Well, you know, when I was doing hand lettering, uh, the traditional way is I would get the pencils and I would, okay. you know, letter directly on the board. And by that time, the editor and the writer have decided on the story. The writer has written art directions to the penciler and has written full script. And a lot of times the writer will balloon where he wants the dialogue, not to block the art, or the editor will pick up that task. Uh, so in emergencies, I would get Xeroxes and I would letter on vellum and they would cut and paste it. So we had this product called uh, Snowpake, like precursor to whiteout. Mm -hmm. So the poor people in production had to, you know, snow the whole back to make it opaque, cut it, and then use a rubber cement or wax to put the balloons in. So like now when you buy um, art from a certain period, you might notice like some yellow spots or something's missing there. Yes. So the balloon fell off. Or the yeah, fell I have. A, I actually collect original art and I have a couple of that where the the balloons are missing or you could see the oranging and yellowing that you're talking. Yeah, about. That, that's that's when it was in a rush. And then. um when a book that was on uh, pencil that, that was really in a rush, we would divide it among different letterers. And the credit for the letter would be many hands because it was like you lose track of who did what page, but you want to get it out. So and you're often it, stuck with a very tight deadline. Yeah, you, you are. Um, you know, during like the big boom period, um, like in the 90s, I was doing like 10 series, right? So my thinking was like, okay. <sighs> Let me let me give five pages to the inker and like you go, it sounds like poker you don't have cards or pages and you know knock on wood i never dropped dropped the ball or broke a plate because you know people kept busy because some inkers will do one page a day i think that's an average mm -hmm. and someone really pushing i guess they're not sleeping maybe two but you know it depends on the complexity of the background and stuff plus a lot of um name inkers have uh you know mentor younger artists and they have to have them do the background Sure, it's always yeah, yeah. a team, team effort. The whole book is a team effort. But let me do a shout out to the people behind the credit line, the production departments, the pre-press people, the marketing. So, you know, it's like you may see, let's see, the writer, penciler, you know, inker, letterer, colorist, editor on the credit line. But there's like 7,500 people behind, behind sure. us, like promoting and, you know, getting the word out about our books. So thank you. <laughs> thank you for the uncredited people and yeah. you know it, it, Aaron and I both worked in film uh Aaron still does I don't but it's one of those things like like you said there's many hands right there's so many hundreds of people that go into a production and only so many of them get credit and Aaron and I have done special effects and yeah. we've done special effects on movies like Frank Miller's 300 
where you didn't, I didn't even get a credit, but there's oh, things sure. in the movie that I can point to and say that is That's there because I made it. Like I mixed a chemical that produced that thing. And then, you, you know, I didn't even get credit. Even my shop that I was working at didn't get credit. And that just shows the expansity of, 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 of how many people work in those things. You are on that credit line, but I do still feel like a letterer is a job that not many people think about and not many people even understand. So could you tell us, I, like Aaron and I know, and I think a lot of our audience at least knows the generalities of what your profession is, but can you explain what your job is as if it was to someone who never had thought of it? Okay, I got it. Um, I provide the nonverbal soundtrack the storytelling of the comic art. And the way I do it is like, you know, um, choice, choice of font, balloon placement, you know, placement of sound effects. Um, yeah. So Stanley would say, oh, the best letters are not heard or seen. Because, you know, you can tell when a book is like poorly lettered because like that's the thing that slaps you in the face first. Sure. You know, I guess because of my experience with hand art, it's like once you get it on the art, you can't like remove it unless you're going to wipe it out. <laughs> <laughs> which is a big no-no. I mean, we're allowed to do correction, like maybe a word or something, but not the whole darn page. We're not right. Out. So, uh, yeah. So I guess we're sort of like un literally unsung heroes because you wouldn't know what the story was going on unless you read it. Because um, I remember when the transition from hand to digital lettering, a lot of the artists were happy because their, their artwork was not marred by, you know, balloons or sound effects. But, you know, I had gone to... A convention i was looking at a friend's artwork and it was like you couldn't place you couldn't place it you knew the character but it's like what's going on so personally i do like the white space and balloons and mm. you know it's it draws a person on two levels into the piece you know visually you see the art and then you're reading words and then you're wondering where's the rest of the story so hopefully that's the impetus to make people hunt down like um, there's a lot of omnibuses you know being published or you know a lot of stuff you can get digitally on comiXology other platforms so um yeah you know with the with the balloons in the white space i think a lot it's a art breathe. you know there's tendency mm -hmm. now like like hyper detail everything is uh, sometimes i feel i crave a little breathing space you know it's nice to see very detailed and such but it's like in the flow of things um i i think the way we see the real world we're not like so pinpoint focusing we get right broad view but what's great about the details when you come back every time it feels like a new book. You know, right. You can notice something different, right? Yeah. It's like, um, that's what I'm impressed when I work with a, a team at Storm King Comics, Andres Esparza and Sergio Martinez. So um, getting back to where Aaron asks is like, a lot of times I can start first stage lettering on thumbnail. As long as, you know, I have a good sense of who the people are. But a lot of times when I letter, I'm reading the art directions. Then I see what the, you know, artist, if he had followed it or not. Or she, and then I go back and forth for reference. Sometimes I get it totally wrong, <laughs> and I have to get Sergio or uh, Andres to like. I was like, please, who's talking? Who who is this going to be? Because it's like stick figures almost. Um, <laughs> but anyway, what I love about their work is every time I come back, I see something new, and then it's like when I transition from um, the thumbnail first stage lettering, and then when I get the inks from um, Andres, then I see you know more detail. Then I start shifting. But then when Sergio comes in, his color palette is amazing. I mean, so beautiful. So, you know, I'll I'll look at something. Recently, I moved this balloon because it had this shadow coming off someone's hair. And, you know, what I tried to preserve in the art is the light source. It's like, don't put a balloon over a light. 
you know, if you see your light, that's sure. covered. Because it's like lighting the whole panel. And you that's probably understand that in film, right? Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. fascinating. Um, I, I would never thought about that, but you're so right. Like, you need the balloon to not obstruct the composition or make the composition draw attention to the words. You want the words to stand, uh, you know, like you said, flow. almost be invisible. So, like flow. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, amazing. That's, that's my pet peeve when people cover it with like lamp or something. It's like, duh, the light's coming in, lighting everybody. You know, especially in digital art, you know, it's like more obvious in old, um, you know, TMYK, you know, print kind of comic. So. Your use of like, uh, the descriptive words, the onomatopoeias that flow into it. Uh, do you get to choose those words? The hisses, the blams, the pows. Do you get to choose what what word goes in there for a punch? Yeah. Well, I, at this point, people trust me because right? I've yeah. been doing it a while. So a lot of times, um, I'll see something that needs a sound effect that the writer didn't, writer didn't write. So I had done this um, short story for Wonder Woman, and she takes a lasso and she. Um, catches a missile which she's gonna like pull out of the sky so it's like it's like with yank right it's like <laughs> how, how is he described she's gonna like pull it out of the sky and it's really sweet because uh dc's on twitter and, and uh instagram and such so they chose that panel they said this is this is how you do it right? <laughs> <laughs> when you catch a missile you yank it out of the sky so it's like, yeah, yeah, okay got it right there so, um, yeah, you know, what's interesting is um, with Storm King Comics and the lettering department, I literally letter everything. Um, how I got connected to Don and Sandy King Carpenter was to um, Leonardo Manco. And I had lettered his first uh, Marvel book uh, called Mid uh, Werewolf by Night. So I saw Leo's art. I said, holy moly, this guy's saying. <laughs> you know, sometimes, you know, you'll see art. It's like, eh, good luck. You must have good friends. But. Most of the time, by the first second page, it's like, okay, you're going to be staying a while. So anyway, um, for a period of time, I didn't have work because of the digital transition. And every comp large company had their own lettering department doing digital lettering. So, you know, at that point, they thought I couldn't learn. You know, it was like I I was <laughs> too old at 40 to learn. Oh, God. <laughs> how, to, how to do it digitally. And it's like, no, nah, you haven't met my parents. I can do anything I want. So. Basically, <laughs> at the time when I was locked out of the industry, I translated most of my um, hand lettering styles into digital fonts. And the only person that has it is set is myself and my son. Because uh, three people had plagiarized my work by scanning, you know, printed work and made alphabets in a digital. Wow. <laughs> out of them. <laughs> I know who you are and they know who they are too. <laughs> so, so, you know, it's like at that point, because I was a computer literate. I never used a computer. Um, I get lost in the local shopping mall when we used to go. <laughs> my husband would say to myself, hold on to your mother. She's going to get lost. Like, sure enough. And then it's like, what? Go on a computer? But um, I have a great friend, John Babcock, who was uh, a fellow letterer at Marvel, and he worked in production. So he brought all the people together who hadn't worked on um, translating their hand fonts, the digital fonts together, and showed us, like in two sessions, this is how, you know, Photoshop, Photographer, Illustrator are integrated in terms of lettering digitally. So with my year off, I was able to do my fonts and like play around. So, you know, I had I have really, really great friends in the industry who supported me, you know, ever since I showed up to do hand letter to digital lettering. So one friend, Evan Skolnick, became editor in chief at Acclaim Comics. 
So he hired me on to do a lot of Disney books um, that they were producing at that time. Um, and then, uh, yeah, so I made my way. I sort of like <laughs> I crawled, I ran where I could. <laughs> I'm here now. But I have to tell you, San Diego um, Comic-Con 2009, that was my hello goodbye tour. It was like, <laughs> no, really. It was like, you know, uh, you know, industries, how fickle they are. They don't um, only, I guess, some people that they acknowledge mastery of a skill. They mm -hmm. say, well, we want to hire young people that we can mold or they quit and, you know, let's let go with other people because, you know, they stay too long. But, you know, with art, you know, any any skill gets better with time. You know, the more you hit it, <laughs> literally, you know, something's going to change. So um, I was watching how I was looking at the digital um, translate. I mean, the manga translation, how they're handling lettering. Now I was looking at like Marvel and DC, and then I felt it was like too mechanical looking. There, there was not an organic feeling. So I think the samples I sent you, like with the sound effects, you could feel mm -hmm. it because I, <laughs> I just sort every letter that you see in the sound effect. There's no like rubber stamping, getting like a sound effect font and just like whatever making jump up and down and drop shadow whatever. And because I come from hand lettering, so my thinking was like. Well, how do you translate hand lettering to digital in an organic way? So that's that's been my pursuit, you know, since I've been doing more digital work. Well, and it really does. Every letter has character in it. You know, I'm I'm looking at a at a image here from King Comics uh, Horseman, and it's a bunch of monsters, zombies, hiss, and it's just a bunch of hisses. And the way you have it wrapping around each letter has character to it. And I think that that really like you hear it. Like that's that's the thing you hear. It. And then there's a bunch of gunfire. You feel it because it's just punctuating every piece of it, exactly. which is cool. You you want to draw people and you want them invested in the experience. Because, uh, yeah, when it, that page probably took an hour or hour and a half. <laughs> wow. And and the um, sound effects were up to me. You know, it's like the, the artist will give me like a baseline or something. But if I feel it needs more, like uh, the sound coming out of that panel or whatever, I add it because, you know, this is the thing. I don't look at my printed work because I was thinking, oh, my God, I miss this opportunity to change <laughs> it or do it better. Oh, so no, I'm yeah. literally lettering till final files. I'll, I'll keep moving because, you know, as I said, with the detailed work I get, sometimes I miss a detail and then realize I'm like totally off. Last night I was um, relaying uh, some pages for our Hell series for John Carpenter. And I had put a explosion, and then when I saw the the color, I said, "Oh my God, that's totally off. It's like it belongs down here, you know." So our our onus is to be honest to the reader, to give the readers and fans the best experience, because they're laying down, you know, hard-earned money to have access to these books. And at Storm King, we have a motto where we want everyone so excited that they'll tell their friends about it. Or if it's a case, I'll put it under the bed. I'll pick it out again, you know, because it's their favorite read. We want it, um, what's it, when you read it so much, dumb, dumb mourn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you always get a digital copy and just like swipe the screen. But <laughs> that's our motto, the best for the fans and the readers, nothing less. Because, you know, um, what I really admire about Sandy King Carpenter she's the CEO of a Strong King Comics. And she knew nothing about comics, but she said, so when uh, she approached a uh, known publisher to publish uh, a book that she was starting off the series, the publisher demanded a certain amount of money. And she said, what? 
So she said, I'm going to learn the industry. So she was able to learn, you know, um, wet printers, quality paper and stuff. So our books are really nice to feel. And we have art books also from the series. So she's amazing. She like knew nothing, but she learned everything by asking, you know, people who were in the industry, in the industry or, you know, in printing or whatever. So I'm, I'm really proud. We're really like a <laughs> SWAT team. <laughs> You guys have done so much at uh, Storm King and with the John Carpenter horror-esque stuff. Uh, and there's a lot more coming down the pike, as I understand it. And then you look back at your entire career. You've done so many different characters, right? You've done so yeah. many different worlds that you've been a part of the creation of and stories that you've been a part of the telling. Um, do you approach a j one job differently from another? So say, for example, do you approach a superhero story different than you would the stuff that you're doing at Storm King, which if you guys haven't heard, it's the, it's the horror John Carpenter-esque stuff that you guys are doing. Do you approach those differently as a letterer? And if so, how? I don't. I, I totally clean the slate. I'm scared as if it's my first job. <laughs> that's the only way you can be honest with yourself. It's got to scare you or else, you know, you can go to sleep and do, you know, sleep at the wheel kind of work. Right. So um, I, I don't, well, maybe, you know, with the horror stuff, you'll see more like horror font stuff or special effects things. Um, and, you know, the basic thing is like representing the voice of the character, whether mm. they're superheroes or they're monsters or misunderstood monsters or regular people or evil people. So it's like you represent the person voice that the character you're lettering for. So does that answer the question? Oh, absolutely. Because that's, okay. you know. I feel like if if I'm an artist, a visual artist that's doing the you know the inks or the pencils, and I'm drawing a John Carpenter horror book, or I'm drawing a Wonder Woman book, the atmosphere is going to be different, right? My lighting cues will be different and stuff. So it's interesting to think that even the person that's doing the sound effects and the lettering is also going to key into that and have that affect their work. Um, I want to talk about a little bit about one character in particular, but before I do, are there any characters or let's just say universes or worlds that you've been a part of as a letterer that you really enjoyed lettering for? I guess Ghost Rider. <laughs> That's what I, okay. I was going to ask, that was going to be my next question was, can you tell us a little bit about your work on Ghost Rider? So we'd love to hear what you did, but also why that speaks to you. Well, you know, uh, Ghost Rider, you know, just a visual effect, you know, this man with his skull on fire. And I was like, incredulous. It's like all these people would stop and talk to him. That's like, that's <laughs> I, I would like ride the heck out, run for the hills, you know? So, you know, it was engaging that way. It was like such a contradiction. How, how could it, this person exist this way? Um, I worked with a great team, you know, Bobby Chase was our editor, Howard Mackey, our writer, Mark, Sarah, original artist um, on our run, the Midnight Suns run. And then Greg, Gregory Wright was a colorist. So, um, you know, the thing with uh, the thing with the flaming balloon, how that came about was at the time uh, was in Marvel. We were trying to like figure out, you know, different types of fonts to reflect different characters, different balloon shapes. We had that liberty, you know, to do it that way. So in a way, I can say it's sort of like when Neil Adams showed up in comics, how the style took a leap, you know, a different direction. Um, so I think Jim Shooter was still the editor. So there was more of an open atmosphere to explore. 
Mm. And my letter, my editors were so supportive. It was like, basically, just get in on time. We don't care what you do, but get in on time. And that gave me a lot of freedom not to like be restricted. So um, with Ghostwriter, I said, you know, this, this person is not ordinary. So yeah, why not a flaming balloon so that when someone looks at the art, they know he's speaking right away, you know, without even... Well, we'll see him, but they'll see the balloon and say, that's, that's his dialogue. I remember I was not a huge comic kid, but I picked up and I grew up, I was born in 82. So I'd been playing in comics in the nineties. Right. And I remember reading a bunch of those ghostwriter issues. And that is just as striking as like Texera's work. Right. You know, you, you, you know, his ghostwriter from anybody else's. And I think we all, everybody in our generation remembers that. But we remember the balloons, too. And that was actually what made me reach out to you. I got a, a, a an email about that you were going to be appearing at a con or that you were doing some work for a con. And I read into it because I was like, oh, it'd be cool to have a letterer on the show. I was like, let's let's look into this Janice Chang. And immediately I was like, oh, wait, flaming, flaming it's ghostwriter bubble. Here. That's awesome. <laughs> That's so cool, though. But, you know, it's so funny because, uh, you know, the thing about uh, solving problems in between tasks, right? I was in the gym working out, right? So it's like <laughs> I was on this machine. I forgot it's an abductor or something. It's like the wishbone machine, I would call. So it's to work your inner legs, right? So I'm sitting there. It's like that's it, flaming balloon. <laughs> 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 so, you know, it's like people people say they problem solve in the shower or wherever. You know, really cherish the in between moments because you know there's like so much opportunity to like think differently or. Uh- I tell you, it's so true because I solve problems in my sleep. I have dreams where I work a full 10 hour day and then I come to work. I'm like, (laughs) I solved it. (laughs) Exhausted. Yeah. I wake up. Well, the the thing you mentioned that you had gotten into etchings in your fine art. And when you look at something like the flaming balloon, it uses the negative space and negative colors and uses blacks and reds very much like you would in etching. And I I think that 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 is such a cool stamp. And, you know, as Matt was mentioning, you find a voice for a character. It's kind of operatic. You know, when when you look at like, um, you know, a comic book, all the characters have a style that comes with how they talk, just like in a play or an opera or a movie. When a character comes on screen, their theme comes on. Yeah. And you and you see that like that, that, you know, it really does create a theme for the character. And with the fire and the fire on his head, it, it carries through and it just helps galvanize ghostwriter into really being something that leaps off the page to you it's it's cool it's such a cool idea so i, I had um, met ed piscor um a couple of years ago at new york comic-con and he was really sweet he goes i learned how to read through the ghostwriter balloons he said i know you're lettering anywhere i said oh that's nice people somebody paid attention <laughs> how cool is that yeah what's cool is like you know What's cool is meeting um, young creators who are inspired by our team's work to be part of the industry. They want to become a professional. I was like, you know, that's the thing that I that impressed me most when I had started attending comic conventions. So 2009 San Diego was like, hello, goodbye. So I went out. I never had been out to that convention. So I had seen uh, quite a few colleagues still in the industry. So I got to talk to people. And that way... Um, I found my way back, you know, into, you know, lettering comics because I was not done. You know, I wanted my save at digital lettering. So, um, yeah. So when I attended the conventions, it was like a lot of cosplay by that time. And I really appreciate the fans love of the characters that they would 
team up with friends and make costumes and then come out as the group of characters that they admire. Or, you know, when you go down Artist Alley and you meet young artists, it's like fire coming out of their eyes. You know, it's like, it's so refreshing, you know, because these are the experiences and images I take back when I go solo in my studio and I'm working. Because when I letter, I literally go in the 2D world. You know, I, I hear whatever I'm there. And a lot of times my husband will say something and it's like, I don't hear it. And then he'll say it again. It's like, oh, okay. What do you want? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's like a full immersion. And um, I'm, I feel so grateful because the art level is so high. It's a joy every day to like work because it's like, wow, <laughs> look at this. And you're privileged to see it first before it comes public. So, um, you know, it's like, yeah, I love my job. <laughs> it, you know, and it's funny because you're talking about Comic-Con and how... It, it motivates you and gets you excited to see how excited everybody is by the things that you've worked on and created. And for Aaron and I, who are just a number one, both huge nerds and B have now made this like a job where we're talking to fans, we're talking to creators. It's one of our favorite things to talk to a creator who is just as psyched about whatever it is as we are. And it's always I mean, it's obviously it's obviously great for a fan to see a creator be humbled because then you feel like you're friends. You feel like you're the same geeks geeking out over the same comic book, but it's cool that it's this relationship that we feed off of each other and the fans, right? And it's amazing. And it's always, we love, that's our favorite. You're our favorite type of creator to talk to because we, you know, that, that, that enthusiasm and excitement just feeds and, and grows more enthusiasm and excitement. So I guess I'll roll that into you have done so much. <laughs> what is something or even some things that you did that was a high point for you? It was something that you did that whether everyone else noticed it or not, that was like your favorite thing that you did. Oh God, this, this is difficult because um, it's like people ask me, who's your favorite child or whatever. <laughs> And I would, People I, ask you that? What kind I, of interview is that? Whatever, whatever I'm working on is what I'm focused on. Um, you know, it, it just gives me great pleasure that people, you know, what's really neat about uh, Marvel taking series and turning to movies or, you know, TV series is, you know, all of us who have worked on together, you know, it gets another life. And I know they're reading my lettering. Because how else are they going to do their research? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's my secret pride. It's like, every, you know, like they're plumbing the what if series now. Yeah. yeah. Like how many years of what if, you know? And what was uh, fun about what if was um, my editor, Terry Cavanaugh and um, Glenn Hurdling. Um, I would go, <laughs> this is a freelancer's dream. I'd go to the office and say, you know, do you need any work letters? Like, please take this. So it was like that for like three years. And they never put um, any restrictions. It's like, if you get it back on time, whatever you do is fine. And what was fun about what if is like, there were so many hypothetical team acts of different characters that, you know, at first it's sort of hard because, you know, every series you start, you know, say if a series runs like um, eight, 12 books, the first one's a learning curve for the whole team, you know, the writer, the artist, you know, and, you know um, letter of colors and the editor. So there's a lot of back and forth on the first book. Second book is a little smoother, but sometimes the first book feels like 
you know, Ghost Rider, you're on a roller coaster with your hair on fire. It's like, who's who? What are they doing? You know? <laughs> so um, there's nothing to be complacent about. <laughs> so what if it was sort of like that? But, you know, I had an epiphany. Well, the thing about being proud, right? I was on Doctor Strange uh, series for a while. And, you know, it's like my husband will watch all the superhero and comic movies. I was like, oh, please, I spent like 40 years. Don't make me take more time to watch a movie. But um, he was watching Doctor Strange. And then I walked in and I saw him in his, uh, in his home, right, with a big glass stained window. And I felt I was there before because I had seen it so many times on the pages. So it was like all... I was so happy. It's like, oh, this is Doctor Strange, you know. That's awesome. How cool to hear that. Yeah, that's what a great, what a great feeling to have and to share. I've been there and look at it. It looks great. When you first started in the industry and you, you were first getting in, were you into comics before that? Was it like, oh, I like comic books. I'll work on comic books. Or was did you have to teach yourself that industry as well? Did you have to like, oh, I guess I better read a comic book now? Like, where were you when you first started in the industry? Well, you know, truth to tell, I have not read a lot of comic series. I've only read the ones I've had scripts to work on. Um, because, I, you know, when you put it in Tate's 10-day work, you're not going to go pick up another comic and read it, right? Yeah. You know, read the newspaper or something, right? But um, this goes back to, um, I'm, I'm the first generation born here because my parents are from China. So part of the process of assimilation is learning the language. So... Um, and our home was like, you know, reading was encouraged. We went to the public library maybe like two or three times a week, especially mm-hmm. in the summer. Mm-hmm. And I, my second sister, Jean, would methodically read shelves of books. She would take five, five. Because she read the whole library almost. She read like 350 books one summer. <laughs> but, you know, the thing with comics, it was another piece of literature to read. So it was not like out of bounds. To also remember in um, newspapers, you get the daily comic strips. Yeah. So, you know, basically in a house of like, anything in English, we read even the back of a cleanser container. You read it, right? <laughs> and, you know, it's like I just speak to every um, new family arriving here. That's a passage with the first generation born here to master the language and hopefully not lose the mother tongue at the same time. So, um, you know, my experiences in terms of the generation that assimilated part of its language. And I think that's why my oldest sister who had passed away, Fei Chang, uh, she became a well-known poet and playwright because of the love of language. Because Fei's experience was when she went to kindergarten, she didn't know English at all. So the teachers would like do sign language and like come here or go there. But by the time I got to kindergarten, I was fluent in, in English. So um, yeah, language is really important. The communication between people and between cultures. So um yeah, comic books were always there. And then I had cousins in California who loved reading comics, and they would send us, like, piles <laughs> for us to read. <laughs> so, yeah, it wasn't something I had to, like, say, you know, um, consciously, I better go learn about comic books. I mean, the, it's always been part of my life. Wow. That's, that's interesting to, to be brought in and, and not really have that, like, because, you know, you a lot of artists that we talk to it's like well i read batman since i was a you know as soon as i could read i was I'm reading batman that way. i'm sorry <laughs> no that it's fascinating to hear a, a different perspective that it was like you know you're coming into it from an art perspective instead of a fanboy perspective you know i got into television because i love watching tv and movies like you know so so to to approach it from almost a, a fine art perspective and 
you know, an opportunity, you know, here's an opportunity in front of you, take it, run with it, make a career out of it. That's, that's a fascinating approach. Cause you know, to hear all the different approaches that we've come across of, of people in the industry, various industries, you know, it's, it's interesting to hear, hear a different approach. I, I really appreciate that. That's cool. My uh, former editor, Latif Williams said, you're the most non-comic person I ever met. <laughs> I take that as point of pride. <laughs> you got to balance that out, right? For sure. um, exactly. You know, I, I have a full life. You know, I raised raise a son. Actually, my husband was indispensable you know, because of the um, deadlines. You know, he was like the linchpin in the wheel. He raised my son, you know, cooked for us, did our laundry, you know, and never once I had to look and say, where's, where's some clean underwear? <laughs> so, you know, we have to thank the families of comic creators too. Sure. They put up with so much, you know, it's like there were so many times they had to leave me behind, you know, to go, go to school events or go to family events. Yeah. One time we went to a wedding in California. I ended up uh, in the hotel room working <laughs> but things like that happen, you know. But uh, yeah, it takes a lot of sacrifice, you know, from the creator and and the support unit network that we have. So you know, yeah. thank you, comic families. We we'd be nothing without you. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. I don't think readers often think about that. Is how much blood, sweat, tears, sacrifice go into one page that they're reading, and you know, like no, it's like uh, yeah. And, you know, my friend Liam, Liam Sharp, he's amazing as an artist and a person. And one thing I learned, if you love someone's art, you can like, really like the person. Because it was until I started attending conventions, I actually met some of my um, teammates on the credit line. So what I do now is like I walk up and down Artist Alley, see if I recognize the name on a banner. Then I introduce myself. So, so it was like, that's one way to meet people. You know, freelancers are literally at home by themselves, you know, work. So, you know, it's like I go to San Diego and New York Comic Con. That's it. You know, <laughs> the rest of the time I'm working. Yeah, we <laughs> love San Diego. We miss San Diego. It's been been way too long. You know, it's just all this it's been a wild time with the pandemic. But uh, yeah, we love going to, to San Diego. And, and Matt, Matt will spend hours trolling Artist Alley. But I, I like collect it. original yeah. art. And, you know, at this point, through the show, I know a bunch of artists, but also as a fan and as a collector, I know a bunch of artists. So those two worlds overlap a lot, but not completely. But whether I have my Launchpad podcast hat on or just my, hey, I'm a big nerd hat all day, I, I don't have to look at anything else in the rest of convention. It actually is hard sometimes when we overbook ourselves doing this stuff where we're like, I'm like, Aaron, I got to go look at this I really quick. Time, right? Yeah. He, and we're like, no, man, we got to interview in 10 minutes. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> got to get that, got to get, got to get that interview done so we can go look at some art and, you know, talk to creators. But like yeah. You can body surf over the head. You can get there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was like the first time I was there before I went to uh, the first San Diego, right? I had gotten a, uh, they had a, like a floor plan of the convention floor. I, I wanted to know what kind of space I was dealing with. Sure. I think it is. Oh, it looks like the, the top level of a battleship, <laughs> literally, right? And then when I got there, I saw the sails. I said, okay, and nod to the harbor and this and that. But uh, all the friends, was, all my friends were saying, oh, my God, it's hard. Don't go. I was like, uh, I'm fighting for my career, so I'm going, right? So um, it, was, it wasn't bad for me because I grew up in New York. So you know how to navigate right. crowds. So my, my son was really funny. So my son lives in L.A., and uh, he works with DC Comics in um, production. So he'll take the train down and meet me in San Diego. He's my navigator. 
So when we first started <laughs> attending, I gave him a list. I said, I need to find these people. Can you bring me? <laughs> I, you know, I can't say too much. I'm so proud of him and uh, I'm really fortunate, you know. So um, it was funny when I started back at Marvel, I'll get into the period when I did work in comics. I would bring my son. He was like four months old. I reeled him in. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot, a lot of um, freelance people and editors have seen him grow up. So I'll meet a friend and I'll say, uh, how tall was Calvin when you met, when I met you the first time? And they would, you know, do with a hand. I said, oh yeah, he was like eight or nine at that height. But, you know, I had to talk about what was great working at Marvel during the um, 80s and 90s. There was not a, there was no question of diversity because all of us grew up in New York. Mm-hmm. And the bottom line was like, if you do the job, you get the job. It didn't matter if you're male, female, or what nationality. And in a way, I really appreciated that experience because, you know, the aftermath of the comics gate, whatever, it's like, what? You know, people need to work together because the teams run up to from credit line to 75 people behind us. You know, why are you saying we can have talent from both genders? You know, sure. explain, that, explain that to me, right? And that's a lot of people ask me. How did you survive in a male-dominated industry? Number one, I demanded to be treated as a professional. If you didn't or you said something stupid, like, okay, let me notch that. I'm not going to talk to you. <laughs> like, I'm not going to waste my time. Yeah, time is finite. And, um, you know, unfortunately, my dad passed away when I was 19. And then my brother passed away like five years later. So I know it's not forever, right? So it's up to you to decide who's going to get your time. And, and, you know, I'm very strict about that. That's why I like working because I can see where my time went, you know. But anyway, that was a segue. <laughs> that's a good way to that's a good way to think of it though. And I never thought about it that way. You know, Aaron and I have done a ton of productions and it's really cool. You can look at where your time went. I never thought about it that way. But yeah, that's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah, that's why it's hard for me to throw away files. Hard <laughs> I don't really need it, but then it's like, you know, I spent time with it. So you yeah. know, they I get a new one and just like move the other ones aside. <laughs> so um, when I began in the industry, um, I think I sent you the Black Panther uh, title See. page, right? Yeah, there's a, a hand lettering Black Panther title page, and it's it's a really cool page. It's got a lot of color on it, but we see Black Panther riding a giant sea turtle, and the letters are half in the in the water, half out of the water. Really cool page. Oh, is that the one I sent you? I thought um, I said you one that um, Billy Graham had drawn. And then um, anyway, I I didn't realize I had lettered a Black Panther. Yeah, it's a Billy Graham one. Oh, okay. But there are giant turtles on it, but it is a Billy Graham one. Okay. <laughs> is, it, is there a caption that goes this way? That's angle? Yeah. Okay, that's the one. So anyway, when I started um, in comics, you know, Larry Hama and Ralph Reese were my mentors. So Ralph really spent a lot of time showing me how to use Ames Guide to rule lines, what points to use, how to file them. And he gave me the best advice about sitting. He said, always have your feet flat on the ground. And I haven't had back problems, you know. But, oh. I, but I've trained in a gym for 40 years not to have back problems. So anyway, um, I was at Neil Adams. We all just adjusted. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Good. Then we'll start stretching. <laughs> but anyway, um, so I was at Neil Adams Studio at that time, uh, Continuity Studios, and it was so it was so funny because you know I'm so um, direction driven. When I go in, I'd head straight to you know, the office at Larry 
and uh, Ralph Lauren. I show samples and stuff. And but meanwhile, there were all these people in the studio at that time. Sergio Agonis was there. Uh, Bob Wyatt told me he was there with Terry Austin. Frank Miller was there. You know, but I wasn't. I wasn't looking for anybody. I was just looking to learn my skill. Right? So it's like decades later, these people remember me, but I don't remember them. <laughs> That's nice. And then, um, oh my goodness, uh, Ron Wilson, who drew the Hulk for um, Marvel. I think he was the first. Uh, Black artist who had a series. So I met him at a convention uh, years ago. He goes, I remember you at Marvel. I said, really? <laughs> but I remember Billy Graham coming in the office. And I would say, that's our Billy Graham, not the evangelist Billy Graham. <laughs> you know, he's our <laughs> Billy Graham. But um, anyway, so I worked at, uh, with Ralph and Larry to learn my skills and did some work with Neil Studio. But I needed more work. You know, At the time, my dad was... Uh, dying from cancer. So Neil was kind enough to give me a referral to the bullpen at Marvel. And what I learned years later was um, Neil Studio and Marvel bullpen, they would take students, they would mentor students um, from the School of Art and Design. So a lot of the mainstream artists like Dennis Cowan went there, uh, Michael Davis, um, Rodney Ramos. So they all came in as interns, you know, through a program at the art school. Uh, Larry went to art and design and so did Ralph. That's where they met. But uh, unfortunately for me, I was not a bad person and the guidance counselor never pulled me in. I didn't <laughs> know about art design, right? So when it came time to choose a high school, I tried out for music and art, which is up, you know, um, upper Manhattan. It was like an hour ride by subway from my home. So I got in and then my friend and I both got in. We tried together, Andrea. We decided not to go. We just went to our local high school. So I was like, what did anybody tell me about art and design? <laughs> I would have gone there. <laughs> then my life would have been different. <laughs> I think I would have became a fine artist. You know? Yeah, right. Who knows what would have happened? I would have tracked there and then I got, I probably would have gone to the Rhode Island School of Design. And, you know, I would have made my way there. <laughs> Ghostwriter bubbles would have been way more boring. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Ghostwriter would just be exactly. like, oh. and bring a little <laughs> Yeah, it's just like, hey, I'm Ghostwriter. And everybody's like, yeah. Just talk to me about my flaming head. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. What if Janice Chang never went into comic letters? Yeah, draw. <laughs> you should get that. Let's let's see that episode. Let's read that issue. Oh, special yeah. guest letter. That's the what if. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, that's a big what if, right? <laughs> but anyway, getting back to that page, Black Panther title page. So what you do is like at Marvel, you learn production skills, right? And for a letter, you learn how to do corrections. So. What you try to do is imitate the letters uh, style to correct whatever. Um, so after a while, when you get proficient, then uh, my mentor, Danny Crespi, who was in the bullpen, his daughter, Susan, is uh, working at Marvel. She's been there over 25 years. I think. She's like a sister to me. But anyway, um, he would give me one whole page to the letter, you know, so they would feed me a couple of pages until they trusted me with the whole story. <laughs> So I was like, oh, my God, my whole story by myself. So I did an issue of Deathlock. I've got one number. And then I did that Black Panther story. And I, I completely forgot about it until the movie was made. And they did an article in the New York Times about Billy Graham's work, you know, on, on the series and his other artwork. And um, I think his granddaughter's like trying to have people remember her grandfather's work kind of thing. And she's done exhibits with his, the art that they still have. So when I, when I saw it in the New York Times, I said, something's familiar. Because of the, the angle on that caption, I was afraid to do it. 
because before all I saw were like squared off edges, mm. rectangles. But then the piece said it's going this way. The motion is going there. So it's like, oh, okay, let me do it. If it's bad, they'll they'll tell me to correct it. But they left it. So that's the thing. That's the thing that triggered me. And then I looked at the rocks. I said, oh yeah, that's me, right? And then the <laughs> editor was Len Wein, right? <laughs> and it was it was a period of time. I was like maybe like a year, year and a half. I was doing the comics in 74, 75. Then 75 to 80, I did more community organizing, labor organizing. But, you know, my comic skills came with me. You know, I think I sent, um, <laughs> sent a, a poster thing I silk screened yep. about oppression. And it was for um, a police anti-police brutality rally. Uh, this young architect named Peter Yu was parked on the end of a, uh, Mott Street and Bowery. He was waiting for his mother. It was Sunday. He was waiting for his mother to pick up groceries. And she, I think they lived in Queens or Brooklyn. And then the policeman came and said, you got to move. And an altercation happened. They dragged him out and beat the shit out of him. He lost yeah. his hearing in his ears. So the community got really angry. And um, I belonged to an arts organization called Basement Workshop. And my sister Faye Chang and Larry Hammer were a group of the founders of that collective. So a bunch of community organizations, um, the Chinese Benevolent Association, the, the Family Associations, the garment workers, everybody came out. I think we had maybe 40,000 people. Wow. It was like, you know, because the police station at the time had no bilingual policemen. They all came from Long Island and Staten Island. Nobody spoke the language. So it's like, uh, that was another struggle we fought for, you know, police you, that were bilingual. When yeah. was this? Uh, 75. That's amazing because it's like, we're still facing in, in America. We're still facing that same problem. It, it's only moved. The, the, the needle's only moved a little bit. I think people can't say it has gotten better, but it still hasn't gotten that much better. Yeah, I know. And you know why you see like so three posters there. That was, there was no social media at that time. There was a telephone, there mm-hmm. was a newspaper, mainstream newspapers, and there was us on the street. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So during that period of time, I did a lot of silk screening, you know, for community events, protests, you know, gatherings, and uh, I just, that's why I use my lettering. <laughs> I just got a really cool poster from Shepherd Ferry. It's a silk screen, and it shows a, a yeah. silk screen printer. It, it literally is a printer. And it says, um, uh, "Words in a printer will start a revolution," and it's just it shows it printing out the posters. Um, I, it's a really powerful piece to me. It spoke to me. So I, I, I definitely, that, that resonates with me. That's awesome. My set, my set it was a little more uh, primitive. I'd see clamps <laughs> and then I had, <laughs> and the wire it. and you would just, you would just paint it just straight up. I would like, you would have to, you know, pull with the squeegee. <laughs> At that time, my forearms were so strong just from pulling the squeegee. <laughs> oh. And, and you had, how many did you make? Um, you know, when we had an event, I, do you know Pearl Paints that used to be on Canal Street? So I'd go down Pearl Paints and buy, like, we'd run off, like, 100 posters or 200. And we would get a team of people at Basement Workshop, like, at 10, 11 o'clock, we would start at night. So I always made the screens either the the fight oppression one is a hand-cut stencil. And then the one with photograph that was a photo silk screen. And you're, you guys are film, film fans, right? So... Mm-hmm. Um, I should be hitting the head. This new way, Hong Kong director, H-A-R-K-E-S-A-I, you should uh, Google him. He was down in Chinatown at that time, and we would work on posters together because he would do the Chinese calligraphy and the illustration. So when he saw my uh, 
and cut one in and said, oh, my God, that looks like a sign from Kmart. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we, I had a, such a great time learning from everyone because he had um, Asian people from Hong Kong, from China, from Vietnam. We were all in Chinatown at that time organizing for democratic rights. So basically, you know, we say in the black communities, the civil rights struggles was in the 60s. In the 70s, it arrived in our community because, you know, you had you have a generation now of college educated people that are willing to take up the struggle and challenge the system. You know, basically, you have to understand the system to challenge it, too. Right. So um, that's what I did with my misspent youth. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, but you have things that show how you spent your time, right? How you spent your time. I want to tell our, our listeners again, because silk screening, I, I, my mom did a lot of silk screening. She was an artist. Oh, really? And, Great. Yeah. And, but what people don't understand is everything that is on there, you need to build a separate stencil for, for every color that is in that exactly. image. So I'm looking at a four color poster here that you say it's a, a fighting against brutality. And yeah. each one of those colors, you have to hand cut out a stencil for and then squeeze your color yeah. onto it and, and that's illustrator. <laughs> so much work i'm glad you understand what you're seeing because we we were screening them for people to hold during rallies but the ones with the information we used to paste onto uh, walls and at first we were using a mixture of corn, diluted cornstarch so that mm-hmm. worked Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's like after we had screened um, all the posters we needed for an event, we'd let them dry. So the next day we would get a team of people going out postering. So at first we, you know, diluted cornstarch, but then some friends from Hong Kong said, hey, let's boil rice and, you know, make a paste from that. And it's like, who doesn't have rice in the house of the Chinese? <laughs> 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 so, you know, we'd have three people. One to slap the pace, one to slap the poster, and one look out. So we were the people through the Lower East Side in Chinatown. And actually, there was one poster that stayed up for five years in Soho. People, people have sightings and say, hey, it's still up, you know? So that rice worked, you know? Wow. <laughs> you guys were like you early like, taggers. Yeah, yeah, we take it for granted, uh, you know, social media. I'll tweet this, I'll Facebook this, or Instagram, and Everybody's going to know about it. But back then, it was like, no, it was like on the ground organizing. And um, that's when you learn the power of many versus one. And you always look for teams to work. Not, you know, one person is not going <laughs> to, yeah, one person will get all the credit, but, you know, <laughs> behind them, right? Yeah. So, but, you know, that's part of our culture also. You know, the thing about um, it's a team effort, you know, that will make a difference. They'll move the dial. And you're getting back to what Aaron said about, you know, um, race relations in this country, not like moving too much. You know, um, recently I just relettered this book called um, Tokyo Rose Radio Hour. And it's about um, Eva Tagori, who was like branded as a traitor during World War II. So Andre Fertino um, is a writer. And then Kate uh, Kasnow is an artist. So originally they wanted me to letter it. Um, and they did a Kickstarter, which didn't raise enough money. So Kate ended up lettering. So um, Andre found another publisher, Tuttle. And the interesting thing about Tuttle Publishing was it was created to foster an understanding between the East and the West. Because the founder was stationed in Japan during World War II. And after the horrific um, bombings in Nagasaki and Hiroshima, 
It's like, we got to do better than this. The world can't be split in half. And, you know, when I was growing up, I lived in two different worlds. The Western world was in school. You know, I did the homework and stuff. But the Eastern part of my house was, you know, who we are inside. And so I always felt there was like a division. You know, when you close the door, it's East. When you close the door, it's West. But as I grew older, I realized I had gotten two worldviews to my advantage. Mm. So when I got older, I got to appreciate it. It's like, yeah, you can see both sides, but there's many sides, you know. Um, but getting back to Tokyo Rose, you know, I thought about the thing about assimilation. It's not just specific to me. It's like every generation of immigrants coming here, their children have to go through that process. And I feel that process of the understanding tolerance, it has to go every generation born. It doesn't matter how long your family's been here. But right. It has to be taught every generation Unfortunately, the four years of, of chaos and, and, and hardship on everyone that we've kicked behind us, there's still remnants now. And it's really hard. Even, you know, before that guy was elected, I won't even say his name, you know, I don't talk about trash. Um, I felt the racist stuff escalating, you know, just mm-hmm. people having verbal confrontations with me. Every time I leave my house and go to the bigger city 15 minutes away, I brace myself. It's a habit of survival you learn in the city. Since mm-hmm. you're like out, out walking on the street. Um, so, you know, just recently with anti-Asian hate crimes, you know, a good friend of ours was attacked two, two blocks from her home in Chinatown. This man just came out and slugged her in the face. And, you know, it's like you don't know who you're hurting. You know, yeah. all these people they murdered in Atlanta. Yeah. You know, the, the man going out for a walk in San Francisco. They're, they're people who belong to families and have contributed to society. Sure. My friend Minerva Chin um, was part of a group of um, city college students who studied children's education. So during the summer, they would open um, a summer program in this church on Mott Street, the Lutheran Church, and it was called Children's Underground. So the kids in Chinatown had something to do during the summer. So um, she became an elementary school teacher. She taught, she grew up on Mott Street. She taught in the school that was like five blocks away. She stayed in the community. And then um, she grew the Children's Underground into this organization called the Children's Place, which was an after-school program. And, you know, imagine all the latchkey children stuck at home if they didn't have that program. So they would have like yeah. 30, 50 kids, depending, you know, yeah. on, the, on the year. So I don't think she deserved to be attacked. She's like, <laughs> no, <laughs> it right. was totally, totally senseless, you know, and I'm angry. <laughs> I'm still angry about it. Well, but, um, all yeah, that, that stuff is so senseless. I mean, any any sort of just unprovoked anger attack, it's just senseless and it's so sad and, and terrible. So I, 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 you know, you know, when, appreciate when, you. You had, when you had a president say the pandemic was due to, you know, Chinese people, it was Kung flu and, and crap like that. Yeah. You know, it just gives permission for people who are not quite right in the mind to attack people who look Asian. Yeah. So, um, but, you know, it's like, during the Black Lives Matter demonstrations and after the murder of George Floyd, I, I had to backtrack forward that. You know, the Chris Cooper, the guy who was bird watching in Central Park, he mm-hmm. worked at Marvel. He's a good friend. Really? And that woman who called the police to come, you know, take him away because, quote, he was attacking her. Yeah. Uh, it was like, uh, it was something that uh, has to be still addressed. You know, you think yeah. we've gone somewhere. But what I'm really proud of, all the people who took to the streets, you know, pandemic looming over them, it was like too much. They couldn't take it anymore. You know, yeah. I didn't come out. I didn't go out because I'm of that age. You know, it's like, I said, my husband, I can't wait to 
get to a demonstration now that we're vaccinated. But, um, you know, I feel optimistic, even though I see all this hate and this tragedy and, you know, crimes. I'm always optimistic because, you know, I have a son. We have you guys, you know, progressive people. They're not going to win. You know, they can't kill all of us. OK, <laughs> <laughs> that's always been my philosophy. They can't kill us all. It's like, <laughs> oh, I think there's always going to be I'll generalize and say bad people, but there's always going to be more good people. You know what I mean? There's always more people who I are hopeful. There's always more people who are optimistic. And I think there's there's definitely people who are okay with things that are bad. There's people who are complacent and there's people who are like, well, I'm not, I don't like it, but I'm not going to do anything. But I think there's always going to be more people who will do something. There are people who will make it right. You know, but you know, the really interesting thing is like, um, during my foray out of the work world, I worked on a car assembly line for GM and Ford, two different plants. And, you know, at the time, you know, nobody really knew where I came from or whatever. But I found, you know, everyday people, they have a wisdom from their own experience in real life that if you listen, you can learn a lot, you yeah. know, and um, I'm really appreciative of, that, of people who, you know, want to ask for help, they help. Or if I see somebody, you know, it was like this girl <laughs> the other day, I saw her arm in a sling and she looked so sad. And then I just said, I hope you feel better soon. And she smiled. I mean, that's all it takes, you know, the interaction. Yeah. And, um, you know, um, well, <laughs> Well, I, I feel that this is, I mean, the thing that I know for me has made me be optimistic and made me, even through some of this stuff as an adult that we're facing, it comic books is such a great gateway to not just change, but fighting the good fight, being optimistic. You know, it's the modern day mythology that kids of today still can look forward to just like we did when we were younger, just like our fathers and, 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 and mothers looked through when they were younger. It's that voice of hope. It does prompt change. You know what I mean? I'm not going to say one comic book changes the world, but it starts. And I think there's so much there and comics can do that. And then we have people like you, Janice, who, I mean, you're a letterer, you're a scholar, you're a revolutionary. There's, you have helped so much with so many things and it wasn't just entertaining, you know, like, yes, your books are great. Yes, your books are fun. Ghostwriter's fun. You know, John Carpenter stuff. Storm King stuff is fun, but there are the comics are such a great medium that can affect a change. So it must be great for you to be able to work in a form of entertainment where you're getting your voice out there and you're being able to do so much stuff. And what I really appreciate is um, the time with you and to meet an audience I'll never see. <laughs> sure, <laughs> sure. That, that's a real strength, you know, because. Um, I remember when I started doing manga translation, it was like, oh my God, I would have killed if I was a young kid with a manga book because these people look like me and they have regular teenage problems. It's not like specific to anybody. Sure. Like, but, you know, it's really important to see for young children to see themselves reflected in literature, comics, you know, movies, because they belong. You know, um, mm-hmm. I remember with X-Men, I couldn't get into it because I felt like a mutant already. <laughs> you know, being a, yeah. a hybrid American, being an Asian American, it's like, which way am I going? I think it's obvious that you weren't into it because those word bubbles were awful. They were cramming the space. It's like Wolverine's down here. It's just words, 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 words. They just, they were too wordy and they did not know how to, how to do it right. They needed, they needed you. <laughs> but, you know, it's like, that's a other thing I tell people, um, you know, it's like, did I send you the cover to the um, Master Kung Fu or something? Yes. Yeah. I think you went. So anyway, um, with such a 
So refreshing for me is to have Shang-Chi portrayed by Simon Liu as a whole person. You know, because when I was lettering the comic at that time, Fu Manchu was supposedly his father. And Fu Manchu is like one of those notorious stereotypes about evil Chinese people. So, you know, um, after coming through, you know, the community and labor organizing and returning comics in 1980, I was lettering this. And of course I knew it was a stereotype. And I was especially happy about it. But, you know, I was talking to my husband and I said, you know, it's better to engage than criticize from the side. Somebody had to letter it, right? So right. the positive thing was you actually saw an Asian name on the credit line. And yeah. I'd like to backtrack and say, actually go forward. And I've met so many young creators who said to me, we saw Larry Hama's name. We saw your name. We saw Jim Lee's name. That meant there was room for us, that we would be welcome. So, you know, it's like, um, yeah, I'm so happy that Jean Luen Yang can write freely, you know, how how the character can be a full person. And, you know, in terms of change, I was really privileged to work with um, Jean Luen Yang and Gary Hiru on the Superman Smashes plan. And, you know, what was important to me also is to see the brother and sister, Tommy and Roberta, you know, go through the struggle of like the racism, but then have people accept them too. Because, you know, it's like um, when you get in the playground, say in kindergarten, everybody's pushing each other to see who pushes. And that's how you choose your friends, right? Yeah. So, you know, everyone's going to go through that tussle in their life and no one can be protected because that's how life is. Um, and what's great is um, how, you know, Superman and the community takes a stance against the clan element that's there, that's part of their community. And I think it was really powerful coming out during the years of the past president to have something out there for young children to read. So um, this couple of weeks ago, I was in California to visit with my son and um, we went to San Francisco and we spent time with our friend uh, who's a former mayor of Oakland, Jean Kwan, and her husband, Dr. Huan Floyd. So they've been student and community act activists since their Berkeley days. So Floyd was taking us all around um, Oakland Chinatown to show us, um, you know, uh, places in the community that they fought for and exist now. So there's a place called Renaissance Square. It's like a circle mm -hmm. and there's storefronts and it's like a little mall there. And in there is a, is a library branch of the library. So Floyd said, oh, the patronage at that library is the third most frequented in whole of California. And I was like, yeah, because that's the first step towards assimilation in terms of access to books. So we went in there, we look around. So my son Calvin saw Dragon Hoops by Jean, Jean Yang. So I said, oh, they must have Superman smashed in this clan. Let's ask the librarian to find it. <laughs> so as we go over, and then she's looking, she goes, oh, sorry, they checked it out. It's like, that's, that's good. Good. Oh, it should be in somebody's hand reading. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. How so cool Dragon, is that? Dragon, <laughs> Dragon Hoops is going to be gone too. But um, Jean says, give a talk there in October, I think, um, with. Uh, Hornsack, just show E I C H O T E. <laughs> I'm so embarrassed. He's a Thai writer, but he's really well known. That's so, awesome. we can, yeah, they're going to do a presentation there. And it's like, you know, from knowing from Gene and Floyd's struggles with other activists to now where Gene has a place to go and present, you know, his work, you know, it's great. That platform's awesome. Well, we really appreciate you coming and talking to us. This has been really fun and really educational. And, I ran and over. Again, <laughs> hey. No, well, you, there is no over. There's you no know over. it's a good, it's always a good uh, episode when Aaron and I are pretty silent 
because that means oh. we're just listening. And it was so <laughs> fun to just, so I mean, you told story. some great stories, some really good, insightful stuff, not just about lettering, but like literally about the world. Yeah. This is, I, this is great. I, this is wiser. more than I hoped for. I was so excited for this, but this has been just so in, like enlightening is the best word I could you use. Nev- you never know. And and it's true. And and I'm so glad we went over because there's nothing worse than being about a half hour in and the guest is like, well, that's yeah, about it. That's it. <laughs> that's how like, interesting oh. I am. Yeah. I gotta go. <laughs> Fascinating. I do want to ask my silly question. Um, I do a lot of art myself. I'm not nearly as as prolific or talented, but I do I do like to draw and I do logos and fun things. But uh, when I draw, I'm very sound effect oriented. I'm like pew pew. pew, pew. <laughs> do you make sound effects while you are drawing your? or lettering in my head i'm making sound effects i'm not saying verbally because um you know there's no tried and true sound effect for a situation you really have to you know read the art read the script read the dialogue and figure out what's appropriate uh but say something like um a horse scalping you know i've never been near horses i wish i'll i want to meet one one day so what i do is like i said oh let me go to youtube and find you know um videos of horses galloping so from there i was able to like figure out a sound effect for you know when the horse was galloping because you know it's like um sometimes in the script you don't get a sound effect but you need one say somebody's slapping the table and this impact just there better be sound effect because it's not silent in the real world yeah. so basically with lettering in a 2d world we're representing the 2D world. so that that's a cue that i try to put into my work you know help the reading along but um i hope to meet you guys in san diego yeah oh well we'll track you down we'll brave the crowds you should uh actually i should send you our um project manager's number oh actually our pr liz uh folder's number and you should come and interview us when we're in san diego oh we would love that we got plenty of mics we'll be able to mic everybody up and we'll just have a a chat because you guys are doing we didn't even get into specifically any of that books, but I did have a hope that we would get to that in the future. So yeah, well, to read some of the books. Have you looked into our books? We, Aaron and I are actually big fans of John Carpenter's stuff specifically and stuff like his for years. Cause we did special uh, practical special effects. And then Aaron did uh, visual effects. We actually yeah. went to college in Boston and he and I, Aaron and I a hundred years ago in Boston made a pilgrimage on the overnight, bus to new york to go see john carpenter do a screening of a couple movies um so cool yeah and we tried to share a taxi with us but he wasn't having it <laughs> he <didn't even laughs> say, no. he's like no nah, i'm good <laughs> you guys look like creepos <laughs> you look like you just got off a bus this has been so fun um was that during the concert or something yeah it was uh it was a uh, he it's screened sony playstation oh this is like this is way before that. This, we, is, this way, is like in ago. 2001, maybe, Rumi? Oh, okay. Yeah, 100 was, years ago. 2016, he did a concert with his uh, son and godson um, there. And it was so fun because they ran the movies you know, mm-hmm. behind him on a big screen. And they played live the soundtrack. So awesome. it was so cool. It was like a mosh pit of people. And, and we got to sit up, you know, the VIP seat. But it felt like you were in a living room. You know, someone's living room just like enjoying, you know, the movie, but yeah. with live music. It was so fun. So but cool. um, anyway, I had a great time with you guys and best of luck with your careers. Wherever you're going, have fun, right? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Well, before, let me give you one one quick question, because I just I just thought of this now. I can't believe I didn't think of this before. 
Do you have a favorite sound effect that you like to draw? Like to, that you like to write? Again, it's like, no, it's the one I'm working on. Is the, whatever you're doing then? All right. oh, actually, I could give you something, an Easter egg. Oh. So when, I, when I started working with uh, Sandy King Carpenter, you always have like, um, like a car chase, wheels squealing. So I would put her initials in the beginning, beginning scree, uh, S-K-C-R-E. <laughs> <laughs> so in the books, look for that. That's my That's Easter cool. Egg. I like that. That, that is so, uh, fun. I like the Easter eggs. Yeah. Um, well, to our fans, uh, thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Hit us up on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Launchpad Pod website, launchpadpod.com. Check us out on YouTube. You can see our handsome faces. Um, thank you so much, Dennis. This has been so thank you much for the fun. Um, are you on social media? Where can people follow you? Is there um, anywhere where I'm people can the, see what you've been up to? Yeah, on Twitter, it's the, the Janice Chang. And then on Instagram, the Janice Chang. Because I had this doppelganger who was like this, like, <laughs> just a person taking selfies. It's like, no, that's not me. <laughs> I put the Janice Chang. And then on Facebook, I have a fan page, um, Janice Chang, a comic letter, I think. <laughs> awesome. But you can, you can message me through Twitter or Instagram if that's easier. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you again for speaking the time. Rumi, we do a handshake. We do a secret. We do a secret rocketeers handshake for the launchpad podcast it's kind of weird over zoom but we've been do doing do it, it for months do oh we're gonna show you so we're gonna show you so we come in sideways like a high five and normally we'd be there to high five and oh, then we turn our hands up to a rocket ship and then we blast off <laughs> with a raspberry <laughs> okay would you I'll like you to join power, us power salute that's universal we understand this right? all right there well, we go so matt and i would you like to join us for the for the rocketeers handshake we'll do a high five sideways turn it into a rocket ship and blast off okay it's like high five yeah, yeah so you come in. The first thing you do is it'll go like this. Bring your hand in sideways. And then we'll turn it vertical. Okay. And then we'll it. blast off with blast a raspberry. Oh. <laughs> yep. I made a sound effect. Okay. Yeah. And then I'm going to, yeah, that's the thing is I'm going to need you later to tell us how you would write, what letters you would write these sound effects with. Okay. Right. I'll, I'll draw one and then send it to you. Oh my goodness. We would love that. That'd be if incredible. You, you tweet it if you want. <laughs> oh, that would be amazing. All right. All right ready? Go. Let's do it. Three, Three, two, one. We've been the Rocketeers with Jazz Chang, and we are out. Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff.